Welcome to Creation Care Conversations. I'm Doug Clark. I'm a retired UCC minister, also a member of the Guilford, Connecticut Conservation Commission. Hi everyone, I'm Genevieve Donsilar, the Connecticut field organizer for Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. Today, we are excited to feature our first guest on the podcast, Lindsay Harper, coming to us from Atlanta, Georgia, where she works for Arm in Arm for Climate. Lindsay's work focuses on the ways climate action intersects with other forms of social justice activism, and we are looking forward to learning from her today. On the first episode of our podcast, Jenna and I each shared our climate testimony. That was our own stories of how we actually got involved in climate action. So, Lindsay, would, would you mind just telling us, uh, sharing with us your own climate story? What got you invested in this work and how did you get started with Arm and Arm? Sure. Thank you both uh, for the opportunity to be uh, on this podcast today. Um, it's a great opportunity to engage with you all, to engage with you know various audiences and to really share and build um, across communities as we build solidarity. I'm looking to end the climate crisis. Um, my entryway into climate work, I would definitely say, would be through my mom. Um, she did work uh, with grassroots communities, environmental justice communities. Uh, and as I was growing up, I was exposed to some of that through her, hearing what she had learned, what she had been exposed to, the people that she had been able to listen to and learn from, um, you know, various agencies that are involved in an environmental situation that may be happening in a particular community. And so really just growing up with that understanding of how not all communities are treated and valued equally and understanding that there are very explicit and intentional business and political motivations as to why particular communities are treated certain ways. And so for me growing personally and then professionally doing more grassroots local work here in Georgia around environmental justice and our extractive energy economy and all of the ways that that plays out across the rural urban divide in places like the city of Atlanta and in other rural counties around the state that are um, being impacted in different ways because of our energy burden is one of the things, our extractive energy economy with um, the first nuclear power plant being built in 40 years, nuclear power plant Vogel in Burke County, Georgia. Um, and so for me, understanding how nuclear is considered the answer to climate change, yet it both contributes to and is impacted by climate change environmentally and then the economic costs, how we're spending our money towards that versus real resistance and recovery to disasters um, is my entryway into the climate space. And here we are today. Now I'm the National Corps Support Team Coordinator with Arm in Arm. Thank you so much for sharing that, Lindsay. Um, could you tell us a bit more about Arm in Arm and also what you do in that role? Sure. So I have had the great honor and opportunity to work with individuals who represent uh, organizations from across the nation who are uh, network members of the U.S. Climate Action Network, U.S. CAN. Um, I was able to participate in the, um, the development of what is now Arm in Arm, a campaign, a movement to, um, you know, 
organize our communities to ignite a transformational era to end the climate crisis, centering racial and economic justice. And so um, Arm in Arm, as I see, is kind of um, a container to help people, individuals, people who best know the conditions of their local communities and the neighborhoods they live in, to be able to participate in acts of disruptive humanitarianism, to put pressure on our elected officials and decision makers to end the climate crisis and create policy that protects people. That's the short version. <laughs> that, that's wonderful. Um, could you talk a bit more about that need to work across um, communities and basically talk a bit about um, intersectional environmentalism and why that's so important, especially today? Sure. At the end of the day, the climate crisis is really an economic crisis. It's one that's based on the idea of profits over people, which is playing out very clearly right now with the coronavirus. We have to get that economy back, right? So tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people may get sick and die. We have to have an economy. That's that same mindset that allows for environmental justice violations and uh, indigenous communities, black communities, low wealth communities, it's the same concept. It's this idea of those who are wealthy need to continue collecting their residual income on the backs and of the bodies and of the well-being of people who don't have access to the same resources and opportunities with those who are wealthy. And so it is, I feel, a mandate of us as people in this country right now to build solidarity across communities because there are the way that our society is right now we have essentially been broken up into many 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 different fractions many many different slices as if our struggles are different and disconnected from one another but at the end of the day again as you see with covid and in the midst of having a pandemic you've got essentially black and brown bodies which are still subjected to this ridiculous violence in the streets from care institutions which are supposed to be keeping folks safe um, you know you've got a, a difference in ideology that keeps communities subjected to systems that don't serve them and so arm in arm and disruptive humanitarianism to me is to do two things it's one to provide a need for something that you see in your community into two is to force a conversation around why the current systems you have are inadequate in the first place. Why is it illegal to feed the homeless in some places? Let's think about that. Why is it if you got a, a, a private lot that literally has nothing on it, why is it illegal for us to plant food in that lot if we're in a food desert? There are no grocery stores around here. The current system has allowed for this area to have no fresh food. We have this private lot that literally no one is using. So if you plant a gorilla garden, you're providing a need to that area, but you're banking on the fact you know that those in power will have a disproportionate reaction, an irrational reaction to what you're trying to do. And that is how we want to draw people into the conversation and essentially draw a line in the sand. What stands, the status quo right now is inadequate and unacceptable. 
We want to mirror and model the systems that we need that keep people safe. And that's not what we have right now. And that in order to do that, we must build solidarity. We're looking to scale to 3.5% of the American population. The numbers tell us that in any situation, if you can move 3.5% of the population, you can even topple dictators. And so here we are, and the moment is ripe. Yeah, I, I, I love the idea of 3.5% because that, that seems, oh, we can do that. You know? It's measurable. It's measurable. Um, you, a couple of times, Lindsay, you mentioned uh, a concept that kind of fascinates me, disruptive humanitarianism. Say a little bit more about that, about what that is, and maybe give some examples of it. So I'll share this with you. It's something that I keep in mind that I think is important to think about, about disruptive humanitarianism. So we, we collectively, the folks who are participating in Arm in Arm right now, did um, a collective day of action on Memorial Day, um, May 25th. And some of the feedback that I got from somebody I thought was great. And he said, you know what? I can tell this is going to be fun. Okay, he went out and planted seeds, I think, in a public park. So what's exciting about disruptive humanitarianism and arm in arm is the idea that it's essentially customizable. We're essentially creating a container that allows us to, to adhere to a certain set of principles and values that helps to guide so that we're all essentially saying the same thing. But we can take that container and make it relevant and customized to what's happening locally. Um, and so, you know, you can make it what you need it to be. You can be as creative as you need it to be. I'll give you another instance of the opportunity for creativity with disruptive humanitarianism. A lot of folks and a lot of the conversations that I'm having are thinking that, you know, I can't protest, so I have to go out and protest. I have a, you know, a compromised immune system. Um, I don't have great mobility. You know, it's hot outside. It's raining outside. And so the idea is that there are other ways to be disruptive, but to provide needs or to make noise or to draw attention to something where you don't necessarily have to show up. And I think in the age of COVID, that's like mandatory right now. It's really like, we really have to figure out what does it look like to make a big noise by not necessarily all of us having to show up in public. And so I think ways to think about that are, you know, there was a rally a few weeks ago where folks bought up or, you know, reserved a bunch of the tickets so no one else could, you know, attend the rally. Um, there are ways you can do boycotts of companies, you know, but not buying their products. Um, you could, um, I, one I thought was great, this kid was saying that you can put one-star ratings on apps, you know, like ask everybody to do a one-star rating on an app. I mean, there's so many different ways we could be creative about how we tell people like, no, we don't like this, or yes, we do like this. And so again, you're providing a need. What is it that someone needs? Um, and then trying to have a conversation around why what currently exists doesn't provide for that need, who needs to do something about it, and what needs to happen. Yeah, oh, that's such an inspiring idea. I'm thinking a lot about um, just even the phrase disruptive humanitarianism and how often we see protesters and they're, they're sort of presented as doing violent acts, but mm -hmm. they're, what they're doing is exposing the violence of the system and exposing the violence that's already there. Um, exactly. Disrupting the system is actually humanitarian. It's believing that these systems that are in place don't have to be they're not all that's offered to us and we can um, imagine something else um, we can plant a garden in this lot that's not doing anything so i'm going to shift the conversation a little bit 
Doug and I came together because both of us share a Christian belief and both of us are working within those spaces to try and mobilize other Christians for environmental action. Um, historically, Christians have not always been the best at this and we want to change that conversation a bit. So from your perspective, are there any ways that you would like to see religious communities partnering and collaborating with environmental groups and other justice groups? What do you see that role being? How do you see Christians partnering on this work? What do you think of prayer as sort of a way of stepping alongside? Is that something that is welcome or something that, you know, we could do more? So I'm really curious what you think. So one, if I can just say that um, you're speaking the arm in arm language. Um, so I, I appreciate that in response to your earlier comment and reflection on what I was sharing. Um, secondly, I would say to your question here is it's all hands on deck right now. And it is going to take from the smallest creature, whatever that creature may be, to the largest creature, to those who are silent, to those who are talking all the time um, for us to win. And I think at the end of the day, the conversation that's being had right now is really just around humanity. And at the end of the day, if we are the reflections of God, if God is working through us, then the spirit and the body are the same thing. I feel they are vessels of each other and, you know, we're having a spiritual struggle right now. Um, our community elder here, Annie Laura, always says that, you know, nuclear weapons, nuclear power, nuclear waste doesn't know any color, creed, gender, race, any of that. And she says that this is, this is about humanity right now. This is about spiritual warfare. And so I would say that really allowing people to connect and, 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 and think deeply about what humanity means to them. What are the reflections of humanity? You know, feeding the spirit, connecting with other people, how that either feeds or can take away from honesty, honesty with self, truth. Um, I had someone say that, you know, God's gonna grow you, but he never said that it was gonna be not painful. You know what I'm saying? And so creating those safe spaces for people to have those conversations, to be truthful with self, I think will begin to repair some of those things in the larger humanity as we come together to build solidarity with other people who look different and speak different, but who are going through the similar things, to build that collective spirit and to build that collective body so that we can be more healthy and more a reflection of God. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, we, Jen and I are certainly convinced that um, certainly the, the kinds of Christianity that, that we know, Jen grew up in an evangelical setting, I've grown up and served as a pastor in an ecumenical setting, that, you know, there's, there's wide common ground among us about God, our faith, and our relationship to the environment, you know, we hope to, um, you know, do, do, do some stuff locally right here. And that's one of the things I think you really stressed is the importance of local creative movements, figuring out what the needs are, where we are, 
and then doing something that might uh, call it to the attention of the powers that be. And, you know, it's, oh, we got to do something about this. Um, exactly. And no one's coming to save us. Yeah. Is that, does it need to be laid any more bare? <laughs> no. <laughs> we have the capacity. It's about what do you have, what do you need? Having those cross conversations and building those authentic relationships and modeling the world that we want to see. Yeah. I love that um, modeling the world you want to see is so important right now. I think about um, a lot of our choices that we make often seem like for me, I, I try to reduce my consumption. I try to like live in a way that aligns with my values, but sometimes it feels so um, fruitless. But one thing that keeps me going is like, I would like to live in a world where I don't feel controlled by these systems. I, I would like to live in a world where I don't have to participate in oppressive systems. And so by making choices of, okay, what do I eat? What, do I need to drive places? Like those are ways of practicing that, um, that are really hopeful for me. I'm wondering, Lindsay, if you could talk a bit about some of the challenges that you're facing now and what challenges arise for you in this movement. Um, what is arm in arm facing specifically right now? Um, in your local community. Sure, and Ashley, if you don't mind, if I can actually speak to your oh, previous reflection. Um, we have a violent economy, mm. and arm in arm and disruptive humanitarianism gives us an opportunity to create in-kind economies where we can turn inwards towards each other for the things that we need so that we are not so reliant on the systems that oppress us and divide us. So to your point, I, I, we are, that is, again, the purpose of disruptive humanitarianism, so that we can participate in systems that keep us safe. Um, so I just wanted to offer that. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the challenges that Arm and Arm is facing, so it's a challenge and it's also an opportunity. We've been working on Arm and Arm for a little bit over a, a year now. And right when we were launching Arm in Arm, you know, COVID happens, the protests around race happen. So we got these real time, real life stress tests early on in something that we had developed, but we also understood that our approach and, you know, making sure to have people adhere to a set of principles so that we have maintained that arm-in-arm -arm brand so outside actors will not be associated with or be affiliated with arm-in-arm. -arm. We won't ever claim them. Um, uh, to really be able to figure out how do we make this work in this scenario? And, you know, and we were, we were right about centering racial and economic justice. COVID unleashed the economic injustice, how we have an economy that essentially can't <laughs> take a pebble in the road. Everything gets thrown off. Um, and then centering racial justice and thinking in the midst of everything else, we have these systems that again are, you know, putting folks um, in danger. And so it's been a strength, but it's also been an opportunity for us to perform and to be a resource and to model what it is we're trying to do. For instance, there have been questions around Arm in Arm seems to be like another thing, like it's like another organization, but that's, or Arm in Arm is not to compete or to add additional work. 
I think I want to be very clear about that. It's to help supplement and to build capacity in the work that local organizations are already doing. It can serve as like a training and a base building plug-in to what's happening so that we can get that 3.5% of the population who understands essentially how we got to where we are right now, our current economic social system and how we got to where we are. But then, you know, figuring out how to move forward with that. So th that's how I think it can play out. Mm -hmm. Well, Lindsay... Thank you so much for um, joining us today and for this uh, opportunity we've had to have a great conversation with you. Um, Thank you. And wonderful to hear about this. Uh, my final question is, what keeps you going? What keeps you energized for the struggle for justice? That's a fantastic question. I literally can't imagine, if I were like a dentist or like, I would have to be, some of my services would have to be given to like, it is all hands on deck. You always say, oh, this is, no, everything is on the line. Everything we know to be believed to be true, to hold dear, what we think we want to be, where we think we want to go, is all on the line, like right now. We have to do something. We have to do something. We have to do something. I don't understand not having a sense of urgency. We all have to be doing something. So this is what I am doing. Not necessarily putting my body on the street because I do believe there's equity in protesting. And as a black woman from the South, I choose not to put my body on the street, but I want to help coordinate and facilitate and support a movement like Arm in Arm from the back end from the safety of my home, as safe as that can be in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate y'all. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us today, Lindsay. Um, We've really enjoyed this conversation. I think this is our best episode yet. It, it was really exciting to hear about from you and to hear about your work and sort of dream about what kind of future we want and um, practice um, disruptive humanitarianism and think about what kind of world we want through that. So if folks want to get involved with Arm in Arm or learn more about Lindsay's work, um, you can visit arminarmforclimate.org. And thank you all for tuning into this week's episode. And until next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Creation Care Conversations. New episodes will be out every other Friday. We hope you'll listen to future episodes. <laughs>